Hello and welcome to the podcast of Small Differences. My name is Otis Anderson, and this is episode 13. Uh, Ian Blumenfeld. And we're here joined by a guest today, um, our church of Patreon, who also happens to be my boss. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, that, this is not going to be awkward at all. <laughs> I'm not getting my review done on the air or anything like that, but uh, you, you can probably make inferences of what, about what kind of employee I am at some point. Um, Mara, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what your background is, and how, you, uh, and how you manage the data science at Patreon. Yeah, so I currently lead the data science team at Patreon. We're a team of five folks. And I started here about three and a half years ago as the second employee, uh, which is really fun to be the second data scientist at a brand new startup because you get to figure out how to calculate how much money the company is making, um, which is a very fun job. Uh, before Patreon, I worked at Google in the spam and abuse team. And I was working on a really weird problem called traffic pumping, which is an abuse vector that affects Google Voice. So I was trying to write algorithms to identify Google voice fraud all around the world. It was super fun, but it didn't really make me excited to get up to go to work in the morning because uh, I don't love spam and abuse, but I love creators. So I came over to Patreon uh, after that. And in general, my background is in applied math and music. So in college, I studied computational musicology, which is kind of how do we use computer science to understand music, uh, which makes sense for Patreon because now I get to kind of bring the math world and the arts world together. So, so, so hang on, just, just to kind of like get this straight, <laughs> you were employee number two at a startup that was making money. Yes, <laughs> which was amazing. It was funny when, when I joined, people were like, oh, you're really jumping out of the Google nest. And I was like, well, I'm jumping out of a nest into a slightly less comfortable nest <laughs> um, that is still a company that's processing money and on a good growth trajectory. So it was not a very risky decision in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's nice that you got to like be the second employee and actually figure out how much money was being made rather than just calculating the burn rate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that because like that's definitely been my experience at early stage startups is like, Say if you're if you're lucky for the first nine months, you're calculating burn. Yeah, I think I think maybe um, so. You know, Mara is here to talk about managing data scientists and managing uh, managing and building data science teams. And I think we'll come back to that because I think you know she has a lot to say and like really interesting things. I think we should especially do like spend a little bit of time on the like what is it like to be the first yeah. data science employee at a small startup. Yeah. Like Sean Taylor just asked this question on Twitter and yeah. was like like his like the responses are literal shrug emoji or like <laughs> just don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or like fire, 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 run away. Yeah. So I, I think Mara has constructive and useful things to say about that, which is I guess not yeah. not a thing for most people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the the main um, the fun and the challenge of it is really figuring out how to build systems that help you trust your data. Because when I joined we, we had a, a Python file that used the Google Sheets API to write all of our core metrics to a Google Sheet, which is just was really gross. Um, and so a lot of that first year was spent building ETLs, building infrastructure and having confidence in our numbers in a way that was really important to kind of have trust around the business. Um, but the other really cool thing about being the, the, you know, the second data scientist, but the person really focusing on it full time um, is like understanding core principles of the business. So the first project I worked on is how does Patreon grow? And I sent out a survey to our 22,000 creators at the time, like three weeks in, uh, just an email survey. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm asking 22,000 people a question that I randomly designed um, in order to try to understand our strategy. Uh, so you have kind of opportunities like that where it's just so greenfield. The company has no idea what's working or how it's going. Um, that you can you can learn really huge things that impact the the direction of the business. And I feel like I can infer like a lesson from that. Like the fact that almost everyone else's like advice is just like ah no, and it like is really scary. It sounds like you went in going like I'm going to do some stuff that I don't know how to do, <laughs> yeah. and you're taking risks and you're going to fail sometimes. And it sounds like you. Your 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 main strength there was like not being like you're going like being able to accept the fail the the fact that you will fail at something. Yeah, I think if you're lucky enough to be a, a employee at a small startup where they believe that data can be valuable, even if they haven't proven it yet, then you can have some like a Patreon. We had some room to kind of experiment and try things and 
build an experimentation infrastructure and try A-B testing and try some models. Um, and so, yeah, you can try things, see what works, and then hope, hopefully impact the business in a positive way. So, so like, I, I feel like that's probably like a fairly decent entry point then into like thinking about how to build teams because like your context for doing this is going to be very different than like a new manager at Google, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I would imagine when you went to hire your first person, like you still weren't in a place where like all the data is perfect. Everything is awesome. All you have to do is go in and tweak this thing <laughs> for the next six months and it's going to be great. When, when does that happen exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm told it happens at some point. <laughs> well, let's, let's put on a survey, right? Like anyone who's like ever gotten to that point in their, their software company, please write into us. We'll bring you on the podcast. <laughs> um, so, so like, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you like in in that kind of environment where like everything's kind of up in the air like how do you think about bringing other people into that yeah the i think a key thing is to be so explicit about what a person's job is going to be um i have so many friends that are like i want to work in machine learning and my answer to them is do not go to a small startup (laughs) unless that startup's product is specifically a data product um so a big part of building the team was thinking about hiring people who thrive in uncertainty mm-hmm. and who are willing to do what it takes to data munch, to be in a gross Excel spreadsheet for five hours, um, rather than perfecting, you know, a logistic regression to be to be less error prone. Um, so that was key, like really being explicit in recruiting and then finding folks that connect to the mission was also a big part of building the team, like finding data scientists who not only are technical, but care about creators and the impact we want to have on the world. Um, and who have some sort of domain interest in kind of creators and, and arts. So so to kind of push on that a little bit, though, like, h- how do you find someone who is going to thrive in uncertainty versus, like, someone who isn't? <laughs> what a good question. I think, how do you find them? Well, you have good interviews that try to see if, uh, try to see their past experiences, like mm-hmm. in, in moments where they've been uncertain have they given up or have they like tried something new and creative? Um, I think also sometimes people will explicitly state that they'll be like, I'm looking for a hard problem versus people that are like, I'm looking to work in this very specific technical area. Um, and I think, I think good interviews can suss it out. And I think, um, just like deep conversations about what they want and the kind of job that they want to be doing with. Do do you have any like tips and tricks on on on, on like the interview side in terms of like saying okay like this is one of the sort of heuristics I would I would use to say like yes this person is going to do fine in this highly uncertain environment or like eh, we're not so sure. Yeah, one thing we've done is to give a pretty open-ended problem, but a problem that's still really relevant to the business. So mm-hmm. um I can pretty much give it away because it's hard to do, but we ask, we ask interviewees to model the lifetime value of a creator, uh-huh. which is like there are 15 ways you could do it. And we just give one tiny bit of data and we try to see how, how their process through working through it. Um, and I think really good interview questions will be obviously specific to the business. So it's relevant to their job, but also unbounded enough that you can see their thought process and their creativity and, and how they approach a problem. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've, I I found a similar thing uh, as well in terms of like you if you if you pack uncertainty into the problem, you can figure out like well who only is, like like who's most comfortable connecting the pipes together mm-hmm. versus like who is actually like well I, I I need to think about what I'm doing here and kind of like how I how I get from point A to point B and uh, uh, and what that actually means um, do you do you find that uh, that that past experience is 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 most relevant there or relevant at all I think I think it depends yeah so we I you know, a lot of folks on our data science team don't have prior experience in the kind of data science we're doing, right? They didn't do product analytics or, I mean, Otis probably has the most experience and directly relevant to a software product. But um, so I think experience solving hard problems, but not necessarily, you know, exactly the ones that Patreon's going to solve are helpful. And I definitely have tried to prioritize that over 
degrees or over the kind of languages that they can write or the kind of um, tools that they use. Yeah, my impression is you ask a lot of like behavioral questions that are like, how do you deal with uncertainty and adversity, right? Mm-hmm. Or that's my memory of the, the process. And it, like, did you work in the music industry or a software <laughs> company is, isn't like, like that's experience. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or how, um, like, one question I love asking is, you know, tell me about a time you communicated something that was really difficult to communicate or something that really let someone down. And that could be an experience from a data science team, but it could also be, like, an experience in a, in a personal situation, right, or in a relationship. And just seeing how someone, um, you know, can, can communicate challenging information is a really important data science skill, I think. So then, like, how do you, how do you, th- so, so then presumably one, you're going to kind of get the selection of people, uh, a lot of whom uh, are, are, are less experienced in the environment in which you're operating. And, and also, like, if I think about your, like, distribution of technical skill, it's, it's going to be, like, a little bit more randomly selected than it might be at, like, Google or Facebook, where there's a very heavy cut on like, you need this like super heavy stats or like deep, deep expertise and Python based machine learning or something like that. Um, How do you so then like, how do you think about skills development? Uh, And, and like, like, like both, both from the perspective of like getting people the skills that they need to be successful, where you are, and also like setting them up for success later on in their in their careers. Yeah. At Patreon, we uh, at least so far have thought about it in a few ways. There's like your technical skill and then your communication skill and then your what I would call qualities. So Patreon in generally hiring, we do like a skills, qualities and knowledge mm-hmm. spectrum. Um So on technical skill, you know, most of the tools we're working with are pretty standard. Like we write a lot of SQL or we write a lot of Python. um, And then depending on the day, you know, maybe one person on the team is doing modeling and one person on the team is working in Excel. So kind of depending on if they want to be more in analytics or eventually want to be, you know, a research data scientist. Like I'll try to suss that out with everyone on the team and make sure that they're getting exposure to the the more challenging technical things that they want. Um, And then the communication side, there's like, so many skills that a data scientist can develop, whether it's working with people or communicating clearly. Um, So I try, we have like a leveling guide where it's, you know, you can kind of see how you progress along that area. Um, And then in knowledge, there's really like knowledge of the business and knowledge of domains. So when someone starts, they might have no idea how Patreon works. Um, And one of my jobs is to help them develop their understanding of the business and ideally a subset of the business, whether it's like fraud or payments or the product. Um, over time. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, that, that feels super accurate. I, uh, I think when I was a manager, I struggled with the like skill development versus business urgency mm-hmm. thing. And especially I think data, like data scientists, the list of things they want to do and the overlap with the things that are like the most like relevant for the business is not, it's not a large section of that Venn diagram. And like, that can be really tricky to get through. Like, like, do you have any, like, did you have any experiences with that or like any insights into like walking that tightrope? Yes. It's, it's a really tough balance. I think um, Patreon's lucky in that we have, you know, fairly good education benefits. So an employee can spend a certain amount of money to go to a course or a conference. Um, I try to do that by encouraging like tastes of that technical skill, but not empowering, not saying, okay, go ahead and learn this, you know, crazy um, plotting package that you're never going to need in your day-to-day life. Um, and when that has happened, when folks start to go down that course, I think it's it's the manager's job to have a conversation around like, hey, if this is a skill you really want and you want to be doing this daily, then we have to talk about the fact that this is probably not the place where you're going to use that every day. And like that misalignment is going to feel tough. Um, so I think it's that it's like a conversation, but also I think there are ways in which you can empower employees to pursue that, you know, either like outside of work or take a day off and go to a conference, um, and still feel like they're satiating their desire to learn. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's kind of like a really interesting point because I, I, I personally believe it's, it's something, it, it's like that kind of conversation doesn't happen often enough that there are scenarios where, where like you as a manager should look at a very high performing uh, 
uh, team member and say like, okay, it's it's actually time for you to go now. Like not not because you're not performing, but but because like the the place where you need to get to next like isn't here. <laughs> Call that the Harry and the Hendersons conversation. Yeah. Have you guys <laughs> yeah, have yeah, you seen yeah. that movie yeah, for yeah, people yeah. who've never, like, at one point, John Lithgow has to, like, pretend he hates the Sasquatch so that it will go back to the woods, which is good for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you don't, I mean, to someone, for someone to have a ceiling on them inside an organization, whether that's technical or yeah. whether it's um, scope and ownership, it's not, that feeling hurts if you're there for a while, if you really feel like you can't advance or you feel like, the next thing for you to learn is not going to be used well by the organization. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I I think the of the personal characteristics of management, like there's not like a bunch that like work across organizations, but the test of a good manager is like what when it when it's time for someone to go, do they regard that as a betrayal or like a growth opportunity an opportunity to grow their network? Yeah, and like you don't. Like the people who regard it as a betrayal, like that's that's, yeah, that's you don't, don't want them working for you. You don't want them being your boss. Like that's yeah. that's you know that's the worst. One thing I learned from my manager, um, who was fantastic, is in the first conversation with a new employee, saying to them, "Whatever you want to do in your career, I'm going to support you." And you know, if you decide, if you come to me one day and say, "Hey, I'm really not happy here," I will respond with how can I help you get to your next place? Like, I think starting off the baseline, like starting the first day with that statement is super important. Right. And that, that feels like the way that you put that is like, I'm going to help support you, but that doesn't mean that it's here or that like, yeah. it's like that the things that support the business that I'm working or that don't support the business that I'm working for, are mm-hmm. like are going to be easy, like choices for you to make. Yeah. I, I, I feel like to a certain extent, like that helps address like, the misalignment between like skill set and business goals that can show up because then you have another lever, right? Like, like if you're, if, if, if like everything is around like, Oh, business goal, business goal, business goal. And, and you have someone who's like, all right, like they're, you know, they've now evolved. Their skill set is perfectly matched to like generate business value for you and you know that they need to stretch in like in like a slightly orthogonal direction so that they can do more later in their career uh like you can't help them if if like everything is just around the business value but if it's like business value plus human like then like now you've got a little extra wiggle room, mm-hmm. right? Because, because then you can say, okay, well, number one is, you know, maybe there's something that I'm missing in terms of what this skill set can actually give my business or, 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 or my section of it. Uh, or, you know, or maybe it's time for me to have that hard conversation and say, okay, like this thing that you kind of have an inkling that you want to do or need to do, and I kind of have an inkling that you want to do or need to do, like how do we make this happen and maybe it's not here? Yeah. Yeah, I think the one great question on that from a manager's perspective is are you developing the skills you need today? Or sorry, are you developing the skills today that you're going to want in five years? Yeah. Or And if the answer is no, are you at least on a path to begin to develop them? Um an example of this is, you know, we have, uh, I've worked with data scientists who really want to be entrepreneurs and that's awesome. And to make sure that they're developing skills of management and really good communication and collaboration, uh, is something that, you know, you can bring into a data scientist workflow, even if it's not 90% of their job. Um, yeah, I think I was just thinking about that and like a lot of managers judge themselves by their retention rate and like what the implication of the thing that we just said is, you, I mean, obviously, like you can go through phases of having a really bad retention because you're doing a poor job as a manager, but you shouldn't necessarily pat yourself on the back for having a really high retention because that could mean that you're not really like addressing, like you're not really managing that relationship correctly for people and you're encouraging people to stay past what their actual technical ceiling is. Yeah, I, I, I've always kind of like in, in that realm, I've always like, like, try to measure myself on like five-year outcomes like the people that worked with me like not very agile Dean. (laughs) (laughs) we can get into that at at some point but 
But like, I'm just going to say this, the short term stuff doesn't matter. It's all proxy. So like, yes, you want it. For, That's very agile. Yeah. <laughs> so like, so like you want it for your feedback loops. Great. But the reality is like, if you do all that stuff right and you look on a five or 10 year time scale and you didn't get where you needed to go, like, I'm sorry, you failed at the end. Yeah. Um, and and so, like, I, I've I've tried to sort of to sort of like like look at this to basically say, okay, on on these like longer run timeframes, like the people who 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 I was responsible to, like where where did they end up? Like, even even if it was even if it was if it was difficult for them like while they were working with me and like Otis can probably attest that I'm not always the easiest person to work with. <laughs> um, like I, 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 I try to, I try to iterate on, on like what I'm doing more pointed towards those five-year outcomes than, than like the two week, let's make it more comfortable for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think um, at Patreon we have this joke that we're like capital G good, like that we try to we try to make people who are like good humans. <laughs> um, and if we think about the folks at Patreon going on to like form other companies or going on to do other things with their lives, like are we creating teams where if people leave, they're like net positive for the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or like in five years and ten years, are they doing good? I think as a manager too, it's hard to remind yourself if someone leaves. To be like, oh yeah, in three years, it's going to feel a lot better than it does right now at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to keep that um, that long term view in mind. Yeah. So I I, t- I feel like that kind of like almost like leads into another point too, which is that like managers are people too, right? <laughs> yeah, the empathy rarely travels upward. It's, <laughs> it's my favorite, uh, it's favorite expression. Um, yeah, it's funny how how folks think management is very easy, especially if you haven't managed before. I'm just telling people what to do. Yeah. And then once you become a manager, you're like, oh my gosh, this is hard. There's so much emotion and there's, there can be, you know, there's so many skills and there's coaching and collaboration and like, how do I help all these humans work together? Um, And the empathy really can rarely, rarely travel upward. (laughs) It's like you take your emotional labor and then they just set it on fire sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, But yeah, it's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I know that there's like a lot like, you know, you there's always kind of like public complaining (laughs) around around like, well, like like the manager's position is so easy because like they are or like they have all the leverage because like they decide who to hire and they decide how you evaluate everybody. And like they decide who's performing well and and they decide what work you get and like all of that stuff. Uh, I, I feel like this is almost uh, an opportunity to peek behind the curtain a little bit and and essentially like like maybe address some of the things that a manager is dealing with like when you're trying to hire someone like you you've got an open wreck and 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 you want to make a hire or like thinking through performance management and and like that sort of thing so like how do you like sitting on the hiring manager side of the table like how do you kind of think through some of the like common complaints in that in that process? Oh yeah, the, I'll say that there's this great piece. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called "Why Can't They Just?" Um, and it's a really good <laughs> yeah. piece around like how, especially looking at, at a higher management. You know, the phrase that comes to mind is like, "Why can't they just do this?" or "Why can't they just fix this problem?" Um, and it's such an easy thing to say, and it's it's much harder from that perspective. Um, but I, th- I think from the manager's perspective, a huge part of it is. Um, is having a, some sort of plan, right? Thinking ahead at least a few years into the business and thinking what kind of team will I need? What kind of structure? What kind of performers? Like what what kind of culture even on the team? Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to build in the pieces for that. Now that plan is obviously not always correct and a lot of things change in the business. But I think a big part of, of helping folks um, feel heard is communicating that plan, getting buy-in to it, like helping your, your team kind of see where they're going and then understand the decisions that are going to get there. So that if you open a role or maybe if you have to close a rack, that the team can kind of be on board with why that has happened or, or hasn't happened. 
does like does having that kind of plan help with doing the sideways management? Like a lot of the times a manager is like you not just it's not just that you have bosses also mm-hmm. that like that, you know, help set the agenda or like give you things that you can't necessarily do anything about. But you also have other people that are like your coworkers. And you may have noticed this about coworkers, but like you have to negotiate with coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like, does that, does that plan really help, like, in terms of, like, uh, getting people to help understand what your goals are and what you're trying to do and what, where they can, they can best assist or get out of the way? Yeah, I think it can help understand how, how you see your team within the business. Like, for, for example, at Patreon, you know, data science is a very specific role right now. And that role probably will look different in two years. So being able to go to someone else, like in product or in marketing and say, hey, by the way, here's how we see ourselves fitting in right now. And then here's how, where we're going and how we're going to help your team, you know, achieve your goals um, can be valuable. That way that they're, they're not pegging you as a certain, certain function that you're not, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to be your reporting angels every day for the next five years. Like we have to do other things or, you know, we're, we are going to be able to support you more in this area because we're growing those skills in the team. So I, I do think it can help with that. Although, you know, everyone else also has their own plans. And so mm-hmm. those have to be uh, like reconciled with each oh, other. And there is no process to reconcile. I don't know. If, I don't know if anyone at Patreon has this, but, but like, I'm sure it does happen. It's like, what happens if they have no plan? Right. Like that actually, like, it's sort of a scary situation to me where like, if I'm like, this is my role in the business and this other person in another department is like, I don't know. <laughs> Make it up as I go along. Yeah. I mean, I mean, don't, don't OKR solve that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, it's, I mean, especially in a startup, so much of it is, which is kind of scary, is learning from other startups, right? Is like, mm-hmm. you know, we've done um, knowledge sharing with like Thumbtack and Pinterest and Airbnb and said, okay, how did you scale from, you know, 200 to 1,000? Okay, what parts of that are relevant to us and which parts do we do we not want to you know, take, um, take home. And, uh, you know, it's kind of scary to imagine all these startups kind of emulating each other and maybe repeating each other's mistakes. But I do think in terms of small companies forming strategic plans for departments, a lot of the way that happens is just through conversations. The Patreon has like a small ish data science team, which means that like, if you're not good at prioritization, like you like would not be sitting here, like talking pleasantly with us. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> uh, like, do you like, what's your take on data science priorities? And like, how do you figure out what's the best way to spend the time? Mm-hmm. Like, is there like a set of factors that you think about? And, and to like add a small addendum to that, because like this actually something I, I kind of want to dig into, uh, uh, um, like, you know, connected to that, like, where do you see a manager's accountability? Like, like, what is it that they are actually accountable for? Right. Because I, I, I mean, to, again, addendum the addendum, <laughs> like, there are some people that are view, like, like, and I think this kind of ports over from engineering, this point of view, that like a manager, a people manager should not have any impact on their team's prioritization. And then there's another point of view that, like, especially for data science, like, prioritization is part of the job. So, like, if you're developing people um, to do that, you have to, like, has, still have an impact as part of the people development process. Yeah, it. I would say at Patreon, we're lucky because managers, it's pretty clear what managers are accountable to, which is mm-hmm. nice, which is essentially care about your teammates. If your teammates aren't happy and feeling cared for, you're not doing a good job and help them prioritize and give visibility into that. So a manager, at least at Patreon, and I, I mean, this is the Google form of management, so it, it, has, it has replicated as well, um, is, you know, if your team is not working on the most impactful work all the time, then that's your failing as a manager. But you also have to teach your team to prioritize because, you know, once you have a big enough team, you can't be going day by day with every single person seeing what they're working on. Um, at Patreon, I think the, the way I have tried to do it is, Oh, the, the biggest question is like, will this actually help the business? Because there's so much fun stuff we could do at data science that would be amazing and interesting and not actually help us move the needle. Um, so that's a, a huge question for prioritization. Um, the other thing is there are like so many prioritization, prioritization frameworks. Um, and we use a couple of them. I like I use the golf balls, pebbles, sand. Um, are you familiar? No, no, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's like the old fable of like you have a big glass jar. How do you fill it up? Well, you start with the pebbles 
or sorry, you start with the golf balls, you put golf balls in the jar, and then there are all these little cracks, and mm-hmm. then you can put in some pebbles, and they fill in those cracks, and finally you put in the sand. Um, and so the way that translates to a business setting is you pick three golf balls and three pebbles and three pieces of sand every week. And the golf balls is like, if you don't do these things, you will be really sad. You'll be disappointed in your progress. And the pebbles is like, okay, it'd be great to do these things, but if you don't do them, it's not the end of the world. And then the sand uh, is, you know, it can go to the next week. So you can do this not only on a weekly scale, but kind of a quarterly, and then you get into OKRs, but a quarterly and yearly scale, right? Like in the first year or two of a data science team, your golf ball might be have reliable data infrastructure. And if you really don't do that in the first few years, you will be severely disappointed and be catching up on that forever. Um, So there are frameworks that I think help. Uh, The other thing that's very important in prioritization is teaching data scientists to say no, which is so hard. (laughs) Um, But being able, like, I have literally role-played conversations where I say, okay, I'm the head of marketing. I'm coming up to you with this question. It's not in your priorities. What would you say to me? Like, how do you have that conversation? Um, And for a data scientist to learn to say, I know that's important to you. Um, It sounds like a really great project. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have the bandwidth for this. And it's not my biggest priority is a is a lifelong skill in my opinion. Yeah, that is not how I answer those questions. Really? <laughs> well, Ian takes a page from Hitchcock, who, <laughs> who like when an actor was complaining about their role, was like took him into the room, showed him the script, and was like, "Here's your lines. Don't give me any shit." <laughs> Like, I am just not going to do that. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I'm on the touchy-feely side of the spectrum, so that's definitely a data point to have. But I, I do think that um, if you, if those conversations go kindly and kind of, like, I think it's very easy for data science to be like, no, we are working on more important things, right? But if you, if it becomes a conversation, you can actually help people be more curious about data which in the long term can serve your organization. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely on the on the side of like you can turn like you can solve problems by saying no, but you do have like and I'm 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 kidding about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the like you you one you do have to like engage with it even if you're even if you're not going to like actually go get the data and sometimes that doesn't mean that it takes less time. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I I think that that's that's like always worthwhile to do. And the, yeah, the art of saying no is just, is dangerous, right? Like I, I've definitely said no so many times in my life and I've definitely have ones in my mind that I replay and going like, oops, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you're going to get that wrong sometimes. Yeah, no. It, and like, to be clear, like I, I, I don't bludgeon people over the head, but like, <laughs> like I, most I, days. I, yes, most, most days, but I, I have definitely come at it from, the less touchy feely side and like made mistakes because of that. Um, and, and I mean, you know, one of the big learnings for me has, has, has also been that like, sometimes you have to say yes, even when it's, it's like, it's almost like even, even, even when it's like locally the wrong decision to say yes, because if you say no enough times to someone, they stop coming to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, if you, like, say yes a few of those times just so that they know that, like, you're going to try to release their pressure valve, it, uh, I, I, like, if you can, like, you know, that essentially means, like, at some point when it really matters, <laughs> like, y- you, you will know what's going on and, like, be able to help. Yeah, I had I had a great coach who was telling me that the data science team is kind of actually like a legal team sometimes because yeah. everyone can hate the legal team because there's bureaucracy and there's a, a process and you go to the legal team and they say no and they say no and they say no. But really great legal teams will make it so that folks come to them with risks, right? Yeah. And I, I think really great data science teams will make a culture so that folks come to them with even the toughest questions or the least important questions, and they'll feel comfortable having that conversation about why this question matters or, or doesn't matter. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I feel like, like, like to me, that's one of the things that like almost, uh, almost like gets left behind when, 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 when people think about teams, that like a high-performing data science function is not necessarily 
like the way to judge that is not necessarily like they get all the right answers and like they have all of all of the right academics and whatever. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's number of reports. Yeah. <laughs> like, How many reports do you generate? Yeah, like like the 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 mark of a high of of like a high performing data science team is that the company cares about data. Uh, and like some of that is going like is going to be people who are not on the data science team running around and doing stuff with data that's not quite right. But like just the very fact that they care, like like that is a huge win, like a huge win. Can I can I dogpile on that one a little bit? <laughs> like the you might like people might want to mistake that for like the company is very data driven, meaning like they use numbers all of the time. Like to me, I I see a company that is thoughtful about when and how to use data, and thinks about causality in the around the right decisions. And I'm like, that's a that's a great data science, maybe a great product team, but definitely a great data science team. Yeah. Um, when I see a company that like, you know, has a lot of data and they're like, I'm outranked by my computer. <laughs> I am like, mm, they think that they're doing great, but maybe they haven't. Like they they have lots of data, but I don't think that they necessarily have like the right relationship with it. Yeah, it's it, the reason that um, the reason I frequently feel bad at my job is because I see it as my responsibility to create a strong data culture at Patreon and have everyone be curious. And it's so hard sometimes to get folks to care about data and be curious, especially when you hire brand new people and mm-hmm. then you have to teach them all over again how to be curious about data. Um, so I, I think that is, I definitely agree, like a, a high-performing data science team will create a culture of curiosity and a culture of data-informed decisions. Um, and that's also, that's a big task. And yeah. that's, you know, like, especially when folks might be coming into organizations from backgrounds where they're really not using data in any sort of um, meaningful way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like my uh, like like my experience with with good legal teams, uh, and like I think that's a really like just a a, a neat comparison to yeah. make. Uh, like a a a mediocre or a bad lawyer will just tell you no on everything because they're like their job is to protect you from risk. What's the best way to protect you from risk? It's to sit on your couch and do nothing. <laughs> right. And so, and, and, and so like, you know, there, there's this common startup advice of like, well, don't ask your lawyer anything because like, they're just going to tell, you, no, that's, that, that's their job from their perspective. It's, it, it's, it's a totally asymmetric bet because like, if they say yes and it gets screwed up, they get blamed uh, if they say no, they don't get blamed. In the world where it works, they get none of the upside. Um, so, uh, but like a really good lawyer, like will know exactly where the line is, and and will essentially like tell you, like you can walk right up to here. Mm-hmm. And if you go a little bit further, like you're like wandering in into the red zone is it is it are you going to fall off the cliff like probably not so like beyond this point is risk management and then like this point is where the giant cliff is like don't go there and so you know my my experience with with high performing data teams is that you can look at what the company's doing and and like like those teams tend to be permissive about like doing stuff with data because they've educated the company on exactly where the line is. So you see a lot of people running around, like doing stuff with data up to a certain point. And then, and then like, they know like, okay, here, here, here's where I have to go get legal counsel. Yeah. And I think really good security teams will back that up too, right? Will yeah. help. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if data science and security are working well together, there'll be deep education around what's totally okay, what's like kind of risky, and then where where the edge of the cliff is. Yeah, yeah the security is another great, like it fits exactly in that yeah. same thing where it's like the easiest thing to do is to say no and like make sure that everyone else's job is a lot harder. Um, so. Yeah. So, so when you think about prioritization and, uh, and planning and like accountability, uh, if... If like, if like you look back over a, you know, call it a three month period or six month period and, uh, and like, it's, it's clear 
that like the team just hasn't produced anything. <laughs> hopefully not the reality. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like hope, hopefully not the reality. I'm right here, Ian. But, <laughs> but like, but like, let's let's say that that's the case. Like, so so first of all, like, whose fault is that? And second of all, like, how do you how, how do you go about fixing that problem? In my personal belief, that's the fault of the manager. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I, I do think that managers should have accountability for the output of their team. However, there's also autonomy and and individual responsibility that's important. Yeah. So if you're not creating a team where folks feel autonomous and feel like they have some say in what they're working on, then you're going to have unhappy data scientists. So that's really important. But ultimately, I do think it comes down to the manager. Um, man, how I would figure that out, I'd probably do like a big postmortem and say, hey, we haven't, we haven't produced anything in three months. What's going on? What are we working on? Um, but I think the 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 better way to address that is probably just getting really clear on what folks want on the team. Like what are their personal desires of what they want to work on? What is the business want? Like what does the business say to the data science team that they need? And why are those things either not aligning or somehow um, not in harmony with each other? Mm-hmm. So really a like a, a prioritization uh, exercise that the whole team partakes in. I've never seen a team produce nothing over six months. I have seen probably like the I'm not sure that what we did made any difference in the, the yeah, next six, I, in the last six months. I mean uh, that's actually kind of what I mean. Yeah. Uh, like like it, it, you you almost never have a team that doesn't do anything. Yeah. Right? Like you can follow their GitHub commits and basically see like, okay, look, like lots of code was uh you know is 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 now in the repo that wasn't there before. Uh, and lots of reports were written and lots of documentation. Like the issue that I have seen crop up is that like like people are running through their process, right? And they're and they're managing to that process and they're writing lots of code and they're building lots of data transforms and they're writing lots of reports. And then you look back uh, after like, you know, three, six, 12, 12 month period and ask, what was the value that was created here? Yeah. And the answer to that is is like not clear. And like and like like this is super lagging, but like but like that's actually one of the worst scenarios that you can be in because because then it basically just says, okay, we are not doing the right things <laughs> at all. And so like how do you fix a problem like that? Like I I feel like that's especially common for new managers because, you know, they tend to get focused around like, all right, well, my job is I keep the people happy and I make sure that I've got a, that like I have a good project management process and they're not really thinking about their accountability to the business Mm -hmm. of, of like, of like, if my team isn't doing something valuable for this company, it, it doesn't actually matter how happy they are. They're not going to be here anymore, and neither will I. Yeah, I have thoughts on this, but uh, let's be let's be Bayesian about it, right? <laughs> like, if you find yourself in the like uncomfortable position of not being able to account for, like, to say what the value that your team has produced, like the posterior probability like the prior probability is one of three things, right? Like either you don't really know the impact of what they made, you as a team have prioritized badly, or you have the laziest humans that are on the planet <laughs> on your team. Like I feel like I can assign probabilities to those things. Like there's a 1% that is the laziest humans on the, yeah. on the planet. There is a, you know, a good 20 or 30% that is like, I we've been bad at prioritizing things. And then the overwhelming majority of that is like, I'm not doing a good job of keeping track of what the impact, like how this transforms a decision because that's actually hard to do. See, yeah. I, I disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I would, I would flip those two. Mm. You think it's more likely that you're prioritizing the wrong it, things? It is more likely that you're prioritizing the wrong things, especially in an early stage company. Yeah. Because like in an early stage company, if, if like, like you, like the bunt singles are not enough. Right. If like if like you're at Google, the bun single can generate twenty five million dollars. You've paid for your team. Great. But like there it can be hard to disentangle. Like, is it a thing that I did? Is it just something else? Did like Ecuador come online at that time? And like all of a sudden, like there's like five million more people using the product. Like, I don't know. 
But like in like in like an early stage company, like you need the doubles and triples. Like those are not that hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's. But I see where 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 you're coming from, Otis. I would I would love your your thoughts. On, I I on this. I think the mo- the highest likelihood I would say, especially if you have a new manager, is that they don't know the value. Is that they can't articulate the value of their team to the business. Um, and how, like what their team's impact should be, I guess. Cause if you're, especially if you're a new data science leader and data science can be so different at so many companies, you can be like, okay, should my team be building models or should we be helping people make charts? Like what, where, where do we fit in that? So, so, I mean, let me ask a question on that then. Yeah. Like let's, so, so let's take that as a given, like they don't know the value if they don't know the value, like, could they possibly be delivering any value? I mean, definitely any, but like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think you're on the wrong, wrong track of like it, being able to articulate the value is like highly correlated with like having been able to like prioritize correctly. Like it is harder to distinguish those two things. Yeah. And I think a big part of our, of understanding the value is obviously knowing the business, but talking to people at the business, being Mm -hmm. like, what value do we provide to you product team? Or what value do we provide to you executive strategic team? Um, And if if a data science leader is not doing that work of understanding the value that their team is, is driving, um, then I think they're failing their team and helping them and helping them know who they are. I I think that's an uncomfortable answer for people who are making production models. It's very easy to point to exactly what your impact was on the business sometimes. Um, But for people who are doing like the inference data science or doing projections, predictions and uh, decision shaping, like it's a very like you have to trust the people around you and say like, this is the, like, this is what value we added based on their testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that feels like a, an answer that I think a lot of people would not be thrilled <laughs> to have to like, that, that doesn't sound like a career, like viability ladder that like, I'm the true only master of my destiny for people. Like, this that is why, really uncomfortable. Yeah. This is why there are 20 HBR articles. on like, how do you measure a data science right. value? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've read all, of them and i can't summarize a single one in a sentence <laughs> yeah like i mean i mean the thing that i'm like sort sort of getting at here is like i i almost feel like to a certain extent there's like too much of a focus on measurement because like mm-hmm. ad- adding value is not necessarily about like oh look like i measured i measured this this number that went up by this amount like this delta is mine <laughs> like like you know whether you're adding value or not. Mm-hmm. Like if you are an inference, if you sit on the like inference or the analytics side, it's, it's like it's like really about like are your results being consumed? Mm-hmm. Like have I have I built my levers? Uh, and uh, uh, and like if you look back and you basically see like we wrote a ton of code and like none of it is being used by anybody, <laughs> like you know then you haven't prioritized correctly or you're doing a bad job of like advocating for your work, like outside of, of, of your sphere. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like probably the uncomfortable thing for most people who wander into data science management is that you like, you are now a PM, Mm-hmm. Right. Like you're not just a, like if, if you were awesome at doing uh, doing stats or writing code beforehand, like, hey, like bully for you, but it doesn't <laughs> matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like like now your job is to figure out the requirements so that like your team can actually execute cleanly and to make sure that you're building the right stuff. Like you're shipping a product to the re- to the rest of the organization. Like part of your like at least from what I'm hearing from 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 like from like you guys is like part of your job is your product manager, <laughs> like yeah. make sure you're doing the right things and make sure that the people who are so, who need to be using those things for the company to be successful like understand what they are. Yeah, I, the hard part of that I think is um, especially for new managers, a big part of that is confidence, right? It's yeah. like experience and confidence, and confident PMs mm-hmm. can be very. <laughs> way more impactful than co- PMs who are super self-conscious or are not sure what they're doing. And confidence is hard to build as a manager. Like if you're a new data science manager for my, my first whole year, probably I was like, 
what value am I adding? What am I doing? What is my team supposed to be doing? Um, and having the confidence to go to the business and say, hey, it might not be measurable and we might not be working on production models that are increasing revenue by $20 million. Um, but here's the value we're adding. Look at the questions people are asking. Look at the results that are being consumed and the decisions being made. Um, and I think that takes a while. Mm-hmm. I had one company that I worked for that used NPS for the data science department. That was the answer. Like, <laughs> How do you feel about that? Yeah, um, it was... Like the specific choice of NPS as the survey measurement, I thought reflected poorly <laughs> on on the on that uh, measure. And like, I actually feel like a survey question is maybe not the worst idea in the world. I know I know some data science teams that do that that have designed their own pretty intense surveys to measure their own team's efficiency. I mean, I mean, presumably you could impact that just by, like, having cupcakes yeah. near your <laughs> desk every day. Yeah. You're like, hey, anyone who asks us a question gets a cupcake. I don't, like, if I worked for GE and, like, that was the central okay. data science team for GE, I would literally, like, probably, I would say, like, our impact is relative, probably something relative to the, to the, the yes responses on the were you satisfied with this. When you're working at a company where the quality of the impact is, like, hilariously uh, overweights the quantity of the impact and, like, <laughs> we're clearly not prioritizing things well if we're doing survey metrics as our... Um, as our measure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like as a data science team, like there's kind of like two things you really want to be doing. Like one is, is like if, if you're shipping, uh, if you're, if you're shipping models, like you want those to be driving revenue directly somehow, like you probably shouldn't be shipping models that are not impacting the top line. Um, And then, uh, and then on the like inference or uh, or 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 the like kind of like data management data analysis side, like you want to be able to like look back and say like here are here is here here are a set of of like trajectory changing questions or dis- like questions that we like uncovered and identified. Uh, or trajectory changing decisions that that we impacted, and like you know, if you look back over like a six month period and realize that like your team did not ask or answer a single question that made a difference at all to where the business was headed, like that's kind of the telltale sign that you've got a really big problem. Totally, I I think at Patreon especially. Um, that is how I like personally have measured the data science team is yeah. like looking back on a year of work and saying, what did we learn about the business and did what we learned change the decisions we're making and improve them? That's, I mean, I think that's the thing that people intuitively feel is just they want something uncomplicated yeah. as the answer or something easy to measure or something that can't be confounded by like that's independent of other, other people. I also think that answer like sucks in a company where you're fighting over credit for things yeah. all the time and there's no idea of shared credit yeah. like that that can be brutal um, well and it's and it's like super uncomfortable because you can't track that on a dashboard every day right and yeah. the fact that you're the tracking the, <laughs> yeah. tracking things on the dashboard team sometimes like makes it like well, yeah, and who watches the Watchmen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a I funny mean, irony we all live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like one of those funny things that that like I I feel like uh, in in a lot of companies and in many of the like engineering centric cultures, there's this tendency to like manage to process mm-hmm. of like okay, like here is the process by which our software gets built. And it's all about like shipping code and project throughput and like all that stuff. And sure, you can measure all that and think your team is being successful. But then like you look back and essentially realize like, oh, like actually the thing that mattered a lot more than like how much code we shipped was whether we were working on the right things in the first place. (laughs) And like that is really hard to predict, (laughs) Uh, and it really sucks to hit that point where, you know, at, at that like, you know, six month or one year point and realize like we haven't done any of that. Like, do you do you have any rules of thumb for like kind of like keeping teams out of that? 
Yeah, I. It's funny. I've been having having this conversation a lot recently, which is like in agile. Do you look at story points? Like, do you do you look at execution? <laughs> Otis just mimed yeah. <laughs> a violent act. Yeah. Um, like, and I think you have to look at execution somehow, right? Yeah. You have to ask people if they feel they're working efficiently, if they're blocked, if if data scientists hate their workflow and it takes them 20 minutes to write a query, yeah. it doesn't matter what kind of problem they're working on, it, they're going to be unhappy. Yeah. So you have to you have to measure ex- execution in some way, but I don't think it's valuable to get dogmatic about it and mm-hmm. to be so focused on execution and throughput that you forget why you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. At Microsoft, I had a, I had to have regular meetings with a team that wasn't executing, and for some reason they thought including a data scientist would help it. <laughs> one of their chief blockers when they were doing their stand-up was this meeting where we have to spend four hours of our, our week <laughs> um, reporting on the things we were doing instead of doing the things. <laughs> and what happened? Um, it was disbanded eventually accomplishing very little yeah. um, and it was the most it was the most awkward meeting of mine for like three months running yeah I, I I personally have actually and and I mean I will acknowledge that I am an outlier with respect to a lot of things but but I have never gotten any value out of out of like process oriented stuff so like like weekly daily stand-ups like never gotten anything out of those. Uh, and like, you know, like tracking code that was submitted or, or like number or like the unit test coverage or like, I've, I've just never gotten anything out of any of the process oriented measures. Yeah. The the advice I've gotten, which I've tried to follow so far is like the process has to be good enough that people feel like they know where they're going and what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But especially at an early stage company, if you have too much process, you're going to lose sight of the, the bigger picture. I, I think, and I think our like Friday wrap ups fit into this mold. Um, if you can make it useful to people, then that's the best kind of process, right? Like, I like I like the like sometimes I will for, like it's just bad I have bad memory so like someone will ask me what have you been doing for the last three months and I'll be like mm. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but like every Friday if I say what I have learned over the week and what pieces of code I put together like that actually turns into a useful corpus for me over time to go back and look and see if I've solved the problem before so that I don't have my like big memory lapse um, issue. And I like, like if it is that, then it doesn't feel like um, someone monitoring my like work hour unit, like my widget output, (laughs) um, which like instantly feels worse and makes me less productive. If like the only thing that I see it is like, like, and honestly, I don't know how anyone feel any any other way about story points. Yeah, (laughs) um, is that like the only thing I'm doing here is convincing you that I'm not lazy every day, every week. Yeah. I think that the way, I mean, I've tried to frame it for data science and obviously this depends if you're centralized or embedded as a team, but um, your process should help surface major blockers, like pain points that people are feeling and then areas for collaboration. So like if you, you know, the Patreon data science team, we work on quite different things, but if someone on fraud is working on a model that's relevant to someone working on product, um, there should be opportunities for that insight to be surfaced as a team. And if, if that's done through a little bit of process, then I think it makes the process worth it. So, uh, you know, how, how do you how do you think like given given this idea around like where people are 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 spending their time is probably important in some way. Um, how do you how do you think about that portfolio? Uh, like like, you know, kind of deciding between like the short term, the medium term, the long term and, and like where you make investments and then like how that fits into whatever kind of like process you're running. Yeah, for us, we we definitely try to at least have the conversation around how much of our time should be reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to do that, especially with folks who are working on teams where they have more like P0s and incidents mm-hmm. to ask like, how much of your time are you spending just responding to whatever comes your way mm-hmm. versus on projects that you've planned? Yeah. Um, and a fun management tip is you can have people do a time audit where they like go through their calendar for a full week and try to try to actually make that not a, not a pie chart, but try to make that bar graph mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that says, you know, I'm spending 30% of my time being reactive. So 
I think um, having an alignment around the team around how much of your how much of your time you should be willing to have be reactive. Um, and then in terms of the the like short, middle, long, uh, it's really important to get people aligned on the idea that if you don't make any progress on the long term things, you're never going to do them mm-hmm. and then you'll you'll fail at building the like foundational systems you need. So making sure folks understand that and have like carved out time for that, I think is really important. Um, I think this also kind of gets to like how much time should data scientists spend in meetings and mm-hmm. how much time should they like be heads down working on a model uh, and my philosophy is like trust the people you hire to use their time wisely and then like correct them or point out where you think they're not spending their time wisely. Um, so as a manager asking the question like, is this the best use of your time? Like, was this meeting an actual good use of an hour of your time? And if they say no, then say, okay, let's figure out how to get you out of that meeting. Yeah. I, I've like, like at least through, through like my career, I've, I've now done like a complete 180 on this. It's like, I actually block my calendar off like most days at this point and then like load up on on like the other days i find like you do need to talk to other people to like be able to do things to like 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 really to make sure that you're working on things that are going to be valuable uh most of the meetings that people do spend their time in are are not value generating like there's not a decision that comes out of them uh, there's not a relationship being built among the people that is going to make the future decisions better. It's just like everyone kind of talking at each other and then disbanding and continuing on doing the same thing. Uh, and and like, you know, if it's going to take you or, or at least like if if a person is like me where like it, it, it actually takes me an hour to get into a problem before I build up momentum to like make some progress on it, then like, you know, w- one meeting, like it can destroy an, an like my entire morning or my entire afternoon. Totally. And- yeah. I, I think that especially, I mean, the, the danger here is you have a data scientist who needs a lot of focus head down time and they have a day full of meetings yeah. and then they go home and work for four hours <laughs> on that problem. And then they end up with a really unhealthy work-life balance. So I think as a manager, like looking at people's calendars and saying, hey, I know you need to be working on this on this model or this script or this really intense project. You clearly don't have the time to do that. Like, how can we make that time? And maybe it's a work from home day or maybe it's, you know, you sit in this conference room for a day and work on it, like making sure that that happens. Yeah, that's that's definitely a thing I've started doing is like certain days I'm just like, I need to get something done. I stay at home that way. Like I can't like no one can disturb me. Yeah. Cause like that, that's like one of the funny things I found about open offices. It's like, I've met your just... dog. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, uh, we have a separated office space now. And so <laughs> that, that tends to be quite, quite helpful. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally find like meeting culture and open office space to actually be like kind of hard in terms of like getting getting really deep work done. Yeah. The meetings help with allocative efficiency, like knowing exactly what to work on. But yeah. like they're they can be more disruptive to your productive efficiency if they if they there are too many of them and they're too spread out is I think a more of a problem. Yeah, that's that's kind of like why I've taken so I've taken the strategy of just pack them into two days and make sure that they're really, really targeted around like, all right, am I, am I working on the right things? Is my team working on the right things? Like, are we moving forward with respect to the value that we need to deliver to, to the business? Like it it is impossible to do that independent of other people, but that doesn't mean you need to spend your entire week yeah, one, one final thing I'll say on this is I think managers can help by setting norms for meetings. Like a Patreon, if a meeting doesn't have an agenda or an owner, and I see that as a manager, I like can help my reports by going to that person and being like, hey, I care a lot about Otis's time. What's the point of this meeting and what is the goal? Um, and, yeah, exactly. And I think as a manager, you can have some, like you have some clout to be able to go to other people and be like, I'm trying to protect my team's time. What is the point of this hour? And if this hour doesn't have a point, then let's not do it. 
Okay, I think we have done a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that's a good point to end it on, protecting time. Protect your team's time. Yeah, I think that that's one of the, like, that's one of the, like, the things a manager should do. Like, that that fits nicely with the dual role of, like, representative of the business and the union, sort of the union rep also aspect of it. Um, hopefully you've learned something like if you're a manager of a data science team, you've learned some things like maybe there's some new perspectives you've gotten. Maybe you've like heard some things that you like that resonate with you and the challenges that you're dealing with. And if you're someone who's not a manager, maybe you've seen the world through your manager's eyes for a little bit and that can be valuable too. Um, so, you know, I want to thank you for coming on, Mara. It was, it's been really fun. Do you have anything yeah. you want to plug or, uh, Nothing to plug. Take care of your data science team. Treat them well. <laughs> All right. Um, my, I, this is Otis Anderson. You can uh, contact us at um, Of Differences on Twitter. Um, you can subscribe on Patreon, which is also Of Differences. Um, and I'm at Old Jacket on Twitter as well. Uh, and uh, at Ian Blue one on Twitter. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.